Their greatness, as they followed that pathway, turned the world upside down in less than a century. As for Jesus himself, he didn't seem prone to mediocrity either, did he? In fact, in a long prayer the night before his crucifixion, he said to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. John chapter 17, verse 4. He went on to ask that the Father glorify Him and that His glory be shared with His disciples. Those are bold statements about greatness. Yet we would never accuse Jesus of being arrogant and immodest. His statements were true, and from God's perspective, His desires were godly. God's Perspective That's the context that makes greatness a desirable quality. It's one thing to be great in terms of financial success or popular opinion. That's usually a self-centered, immodest ambition. But to be great in God's kingdom? That's a noble desire. We are designed to be great in God's eyes. When He created humanity, He proclaimed us not just good, but very good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. We exist for His glory. That kind of purpose isn't served well by mediocrity or even by settling for simply being good. No, God loves it when His people are zealous about making a difference for His kingdom. He eagerly looks over the landscape of this world to honor, empower, and strengthen those whose love and obedience bring Him pleasure. Our greatness, as He defines it, is His desire. Over the past decade, I have been thinking and praying deeply over this concept of greatness in God's eyes. How can we throw off false humility and fully embrace God-given desires and dreams that bring honor and glory to His name? In my journey, I've begun to observe that great Christians have certain practices in common. My research is less methodical and empirical than that of Collins and his team of researchers. After all, the complex characteristics of corporate culture are a little harder to discern than the practices of individual Christians. But as I have surveyed the lives of great men and women of faith, I have noticed certain patterns that I consider to be valid evidence of the difference between an ordinary and an extraordinary follower of Christ. When I see the practices identified in this book in a Christian's life, the result is almost always a rare level of maturity and fruitfulness. Conversely, when I don't see those practices in a person's life, the result is almost always mediocrity. This pattern flows out of numerous examples from Scripture, church history, and current experience. Christians who develop these practices with the right motivation and a clear understanding of grace are powerfully used by God for His glory. Many people have projected into the future what they think their career ought to look like, a certain salary and position in five years, then in ten, then in twenty. Most of us have had similar projections for family, when we want to get married, how many children we want to have, where we want to live. Those timelines may not be written out, 
They may not even be conscious thoughts, but most of us have them, at least for those core areas of life that are important to us. What would a spiritual timeline look like for you? What are your ambitions as a follower of Jesus? Have you thought about the kind of Christian you'd like to be in five, ten, and twenty years? Have you deeply pondered what kind of impact you want your life to have for Christ? What would your life look like if you, in fact, fulfilled Jesus' prayer that you bear much fruit? John chapter 15, verse 8. What would the fruit look like? How would the world be different? When you have run the race with perseverance and finally crossed the finish line, what kind of assessment of your life do you envision the Lord giving you? There's nothing wrong with allowing yourself to think in those terms. In fact, Jesus...